0: Hey, George, Paul.
1: Howdy, sir. How are you?
0: I'm fine. I, I thought when you'd said that you wanted to delay it from five to six your time.
1: It was the other way around. I wanted to go earlier from six to five my time.
0: Misread it. Okay, let me get Chris on the line.
1: That's the worst thing that happens to us today, right? Yeah. Hello?
0: Yeah, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, and George is here.
2: Yep. All right. Yep.
0: Okay. Let me double-check the uh, record Okay, yeah, we're good. All right, so here we are again, another Model Railroad Hobbyist podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and of course, Chris Palomares is on. Today, we've got uh, George Bogatuck from uh, Soundtracks, and we're going to talk about some DCC-related issues. And one of them, one thing we're going to talk about, is speed tables speed tables always mystified me uh then chris worked up a speed table sent it to me and all of a sudden it just clicked understood exactly what he was doing so <laughs> uh and so i installed it very simply into a number of locomotives and it was just magic what can i tell you it was just magic Now, so when we do that, then we have to uh, document in CV29 that we're doing a speed table with a a specific value. In my instance, it was 50 uh, because I'm not doing uh, DC. I'm doing DCC only. Uh, locomotive is running in the forward direction and uh, whatever else is in there, 128 speed steps. So, and this is what had always confused me, was the value that we put in CVs, 67 all the way up to 94. Those are the 28 speed steps. Uh, the decoder, in this case, of Tsunami 2, I'm going to say extrapolates that out to 128 speed steps that I'm running under. Is that the correct presumption, George?
1: Cor- correct. So your CV67 through 94 uh, represent the 28 speed steps, and the value is basically 0 to 255 represents 0 to 100% of the available power and available throttle. Okay. And so you go through and you set each one to adjust uh, even increments, or you can do uh, odd increments, however you want to build a a speed table. And then the decoder will translate the in-between of the 28s when you switch to 128 speed step mode.
0: Okay. Now, let's say in the case of uh, the speed table that Chris shared with me, and actually made available for people to uh, download from his site. So, when I put a 3 into CV67, what does that 3 signify to the decoder?
1: Uh, basically, about a 0.01% of the throttle.
0: Okay. Okay, and then if I put a a six in cv68 then that's a, a slightly Rough. increased percentage
1: correct so that would be 0. 0.02 uh percent of the throttle so or but i shouldn't say 0. 0.02 it's like two percent of the thr- of the available throttle
0: okay all right and when we say two percent of that we're talking about voltage
1: uh, essentially, yes. So, so this is kind of one of the things that's kind of difficult because every DCC system has a different track voltage. Um, there's even different voltages between the same brand. So like, say, for example, a Digitrax Zephyr has one voltage, whereas a Digitrax uh, Chief with the DCS-100 has a different voltage. And the decoder can only, it can't create more power. So it's using a percentage of the available voltage that's on the track. So that's kind of the best way to look at it is that you're t- right here you're with, you're with you know, three and six in your CV values, you're looking at one and two percent of the available, let's say, 14 volts on the rails. OK. So if you take 14 volts and multiply that by the uh, two percent, you're actually putting like point two volts to it. OK. Or the equivalent thereof. All
0: right. And I can go up all 28 speed steps. As in Chris's example, or if I want to level what I'm going to call my top speed at a point, let's just say I don't want to go faster than uh, I'm up to CV85, and I've got a value of 60 in there. So that's Mm -hmm. is that 60% of the voltage? No. Where are we by then?
2: Uh, Let me get my trusty, rusty calculator out. (laughs) Okay. So, Paul, you're you're talking about using the speed table to serve like a governor.
0: Yes, if I don't want to go because what I had here was a very small railroad and I'm not looking for 100 scale miles per hour, whatever speed step 128 might be and the progression you gave me, if i stop it at some point and i just picked 60 when i was looking at your table yesterday uh, thinking about talking points if i flatline all the other uh, cvs like 86 up to 94 at 60 then i've in effect governed how fast that locomotive will go
1: yeah Cor- correct okay Now, there's another way you can do this. If you want 60 to be your top speed, which represents about 23% of your available throttle. So, you're cutting it down quite a bit. Okay. If you want that to be your top speed, then you can actually set that in CV94. And then you take that 60 value, divide it by 28. And then you've got basically 2.14 speed step increments. So, if you started at CV66 and set it to 2. Okay. CVC, uh, I'm sorry, 67 started at 2, 68 started at 4, and work your way up. Then when you get to 100% of the throttle, your decoder is only going to be moving the equivalent of 23% of the uh, available power. But you have a very minute change throughout the entire speed range. So you can go all the way up to speed step, say, 85, and you're only going to be moving about, you know, Fifteen to twenty percent of the throttle.
0: Okay, all right. Now I understand what you're saying about go ahead and take the the difference from on up to uh, CV ninety four, and okay, gotcha. That crystal clear.
1: Now the big thing about using the custom speed tables. One thing that that we've allowed you to do is if for any reason you want speed step one to be a hundred percent and cv uh or and, and speed step 128 to be the minimum you can build that with our speed tables i don't know why you would do that but what's interesting is when we do our verification test we have to set every one of these values 66 through 94 uh to random values so it'll be interesting because when we go through the speed steps you can hear that motor changing speed just kind of randomly um, so you have the flexibility to create whatever speed table you want. So if you wanted to max out uh, at, spe- you know, say a value of 255, say at speed step 20, you can do that too. And then from 20 on, they would have no effect on the speed. So that's entirely up to you and how you want to build your custom speed table. But the other part of that and kind of what I was wanting to, to highlight was that, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, the custom speed table. Well, you in order to do that, you have to enable alternate speed tables in CV twenty nine. Right, and that's which is- where. And so you have to go and enable that first. Then you can go through and set, make sure CV twenty five is set to sixteen, which I believe it's set to zero or one for a default straight linear curve. But CV twenty five to a value of sixteen enables the user adjustable. Until that point, CV66 through 95 are not even referenced. Okay. You can put anything in there and it won't make a difference until you tell the decoder, hey, refer to these values. And then the decoder says, okay, I'm supposed to look at these and then we'll enable those values. So you have to go through and adjust it and enable it first. Then you can go through and set CV by CV how you want. So you can set it to speed step one of 28 adjust that value until you get the speed you want. If you, if you want to do it that way, go to two, go through and adjust it. Or you can just set the CVs. Like you've determined what your top speed is okay, and where that's at. And then you can just build the speed table by programming the CVs quickly. Oh, okay. And I, I'll, I'll give you a little teaser. I kind of mentioned that way. Um, wording it that way for a reason, I'm going to lead into a little bit of speed matching discussion
0: okay alright so we have to set values in 25 and 29 to tell the 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 decoder that we are going to be setting a uh, multi-step speed table
1: correct that we're doing a custom speed table
0: custom speed table okay
1: mm-hmm.
0: now the other thing that can impact that before we I'd like to I'm glad you brought up speed matching Mm -hmm. is the deadband okay and that's what cv 216 yes sir okay and when i had a question of how my locomotives were reacting you said that the value that we input on 216 if we're going to have a dead band actually just shoves all the speed steps back by whatever that number value is correct Okay, so if I put a three in there, you know, like three speed steps, the RPMs will come up, but without the speed table, then a locomotive won't start moving till speed step three. Now, what, go ahead, explain more properly what that does to the rest of the steps in my uh, speed table.
1: So if you had set a max speed of 60 in CB94, um, and let's say they were, you know, value of two increments all the way through to get your 28 speed steps, then what's going to happen is you're basically going to max your speed out at 56 if you set it to a value of, I think it's like 7 or 10. Because the decoder, when you're looking at the deadband, it's setting it by uh, by speed steps of 128, your speed table is built 28 because we thought about it once upon a time putting all 128 speed t- steps in there but nobody would ever sit there and calculate 128 and then set 128 CVs one at a time so the decoder kind of creates that interpolating so what happens is that one speed step of 28 is about the equivalent of five speed steps in 128 speed step mode okay so so your dead band you'd have to if you set it to like say a value of 3 you're, you're really only losing like maybe a top, say a, a half a percent or 1% of the throttle at top speed because your, your CV66 value is, ba- or I'm sorry, CV67 value is essentially gonna be speed step one, but then when you jump to speed step two, you've essentially jumped five speed steps in 128 speed step mode.
0: Okay, all right. I see what you're, what you're saying.
1: So it's, it's really kind of a, you know, set your speed table kind of where you want it. And then if you want to enable the dead band, you know, set it up. Most people usually use a a value of one, two or three, because it's, all you're doing is just trying to load the prime mover up a little bit before you start to move. And what you can do then is then you're, you know, it's not going to notch all the way up to eight before you move. If you get to that point, then you can do one of two things. You can set the brakes. And leave the F11 on, throttle up, and then that will continue to notch up. And then you can release the brakes when you get to where you want to release and start running. And then that won't affect your speed tables. Uh, It won't shift them or anything like that. But I know there's some other uh, decoders out there that use a deadband-type technology. So this is something that's implemented to allow you to be a little bit more friendly, say, with some of the other stuff that's out there.
0: Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I ended up putting it on about, uh, I think I've done 10 of my locomotives so far. Uh, It's fascinating, speed tables and uh, playing with the dead band. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk about then what you mentioned, how this comes into play on speed matching.
1: So speed matching is a fun topic because... um Every locomotive has a seemingly slightly different character when it comes to interpreting the speed tables because you may have two models, say, from our friends at Atherin, but, a, but they have just a little bit slightly different speed because of things like motor efficiency and the windings may be slightly different. You may have one where the gears mesh a little better than the other, and so it's having to put a little more power through there to, to maintain the speed. And so what the speed matching does, it allows you to kind of determine uh, the speeds for each individual locomotive so that they're not bucking against each other, one's not constantly dragging or being pushed around. Um, and so what you can do is, well, when, I, when it comes to speed matching, one of the first things I always recommend is find one in your fleet that no speed tables, no anything is set, or if you do set the speed tables, that you don't have to use any special custom adjustments, anything like that. This is the one that I want everything to run just like and then you take that as your master and everything else becomes the copy of that locomotive. So when you go through and you, let's say you set your speed tables and you've got your max speed sitting at you know, 60 of 255, well then you take your next locomotive, you run them side by side, set them both to speed step one in 28 speed step mode, and then you can adjust the copy CV value as 67 up or down until it matches exactly. Then, once it does, then you go to speed step two. And when the locomotive, and you can go through, and that way it'll help co- cover any small, slight variations between the models. The other thing that we have uh, built into the decoder is what's called the, the trim, and that's CV66 in and forward and CV95 in reverse. And the trim, the idea be- behind the trim initially was to slightly shift my speed table up or down to help compensate for physical speed differences between forward and reverse. Uh, we all have that locomotive where you put on the track and the thing runs fantastic in forward, but as soon as you go in reverse, it seems like you have to give it twice the juice or, or, or something along those lines. Well, what this does, this allows you to customize the, the effects in forward and reverse slightly so that it will help compensate for differences in your forward and reverse movement. Um, and that can be, again, motor windings, gear meshing, uh, wear and tear on the locomotive, because if you're put, running a, a locomotive constantly forward around your loop or your uh, uh, modular layout or something like that, the gears may become more more well meshed in forward than they are in reverse. And so what this does, this allows you to customize, slightly shift the table so that your locomotive, regardless of direction, will get a, pre, a, a predictable response. And so by going speed step by speed step through the range you can match your locomotive and admittedly it's going to be a little bit of a tedious process but you're going to have a I mean a perfectly matched locomotive so then you take that second one and you kind of have an idea what that was you could set that table in there and run them together side by side or end to end whatever you want to do and just kind of see how they are and make your slight adjustments in the cvs to get everything speed matched but again make sure you have your master That everything is matching to. And then, because what happens is if you match two locomotives, then you take the copy and you match it to a third locomotive, and then you match the third locomotive to the fourth locomotive, and then you try to run the first one and the fourth one, and they're going to be all over the place. They're not going to be anything close. And so, you know, like I said, time, if you really want to sit down with the speed matching and get it nailed on dead perfect, you can really do that with the Tsunami too by going through and adjusting each of the 28 speed steps by just slightly shifting that CV value up or down. You can really, really, truly get it matched. But like I said, it can be a a uh, time-consuming process, and so it's up to you and or the users how much effort you want to put into it. But that's something that's been coming up a lot with uh, questions to us, Um, especially since on our YouTube series, uh, last week we posted a uh, uh, the third of our uh, consisting video is talking about how to use uh, what the different types of consisting are how to use advanced consisting and then some other uh, uses of advanced consisting kind of bringing in push-pull Uh, commuter service and some uh, multiple units where you've got units on the end of the train and how they, how do, how do you get that into the consisting? And so with that, with that series, we've done three videos on that. you can find that at youtube.com if you search soundtracks, but we got a lot of questions about speed matching. And so I think we're going to be doing a speed matching video kind of explaining what we just talked about, but in video form uh, on our YouTube channel um and, and and see what we can show off but that's where these speed tables really shine because you can go in and, and manipulate each individual speed state, uh speed step now down and dirty if you're just looking at limiting your top speed and your mid speed um the tsunami 2 and the economy actually bring in cvs five and six and those are enabled by default So CV5 is your top speed and CV6 is your mid-speed. So let's go back to your top speed of of 60 out of 255. Well, you can set CV5 to 60 and CV6 to a value of of 30, which is midpoint of 60, and your decoder will kind of automatically interpret that and kind of create a straight linear curve. Now, if you were to say, okay, I want more control on the lower half, you could set say CV six to a value of 20. So you've got a very, very small increments all the way up to about speed step. Uh, what is half of that 64? But then once you get to speed step 64, then your increments become a lot bigger as you go through the speed range. So you can mat, you know, create kind of a three point speed curve, um, using that way. Uh, so you can kind of save a little bit of time in that regard by doing that with your speed matching. If you chose, if you choose to do that, or like in your case where you're trying to limit your top speed, so you can down and dirty quick and do that. And that'll get you going. But then if you really want to refine that control, each individual speed step, you can do it the other way too, with CV 66 through 97 through 95.
0: Okay. All right. And yeah, in the past, because I was just intimidated by the 28 speed step table, yeah, I, I manipulated V, uh, CV5 and 6, and uh, then when Chris sent me that, and I went, golly, this makes so much more sense, and so the novelty of it, so I put it in. Gotcha. A
1: well, I, I will tell you that there's there's a lot of things that we put in the decoder to give you as the user a lot more customizing uh, capabilities, the problem is, is because of the, sometimes people get when they hear C V S or making you know programming, they get immediately kind of nervous, and mm-hmm. they think they're going to break it. And you know, <laughs> the 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 problem is, is that then they'd say, well, you know what, I'm I'll have I'll, I'll live with this because it's running right now. I don't want to break it. And you know, and somewhat, you know, by having that slight hesitation or that slight fear of making CV adjustments, you kind of lose some of the fa- effects and, and kind of what you paid for. It's kind of the equivalent of putting rabbit ears on a TV. Uh, nowadays with HDTV, yeah, you can see still still see the picture, but are, you're not really getting the definition that you paid for.
0: What other things, George, are you running into at, at, say, shows or meets or so forth that are on people's mind that are relative to the Tsunami too and so forth?
1: Um, well, a lot of people are still kind of learning what the decoder can do. Um, it's kind of the best decoder not many people know much about. Oh, gotcha. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, a decoder that people are just kind of, you know, when we first announced the Tsunami 2, there were a handful of people that just said, oh, I see, it's just a rehash of the original tsunami, and then they dismissed it. And as you know, with with the Internet... Um, you know, somebody says that no matter their credentials, and somebody's going to listen to it and be and believe it. And so, we're trying to we we put so much effort into this decoder to make sure that it really reproduces the operation of the locomotive. Um, that we're really working hard with the YouTube channels, with uh, you know show appearances and things like that to really get the word out to show that no, it's not just a rehash. I mean, anybody can make a noisemaker, and we've done that in the past, but some of the things like, for example, the interaction of sounds is something I like to talk about because, you know, there, there's companies out there that may have, for example, uh, well, let's just talk about volumes for a second. They'll have like a, a, a horn volume, a bell volume, a, you know, prime mover volume or whatever, and then a background sounds. And, what the Tsunami 2 has done is given you a volume control on every single sound effect. So with over 50 different sound effects in the decoder, you have a volume control for every single one of them. So you can determine how those sounds interact and what your perception is. So if your spitter valve, let's say, is is a lot louder than what we put it, you can adjust that and make that louder for yourself. <clears throat> Excuse me. but the. The other side of that is not just that we've got all of those sound effects built into the decoder, but they work interactive with how you're using the decoder. So like, say for example, when you're using the brake function, which is F11 by default, when you apply your brakes, if you use those brakes more frequently, on the real locomotive, you're depleting your reservoir of air. You're depleting your air pressure. And so what happens, the compressor has to kick on to charge that air reservoir back up. We've got an intelligent algorithm in there that's watching how you use your decoder, so that when you use your brakes more frequently, you're going to hear that compressor cycle more frequently because it's got to recharge that reservoir. And and you know, going one step farther with our V1.2 uh, firmware that we've got in uh, that we've been shipping since October, there there's the interactive sounds of the air dryer, and so the air dryer sounds actually have different sounds that play based on when the compressor starts and stops. And so it's not just a one single sound effect that plays on a channel that, you know, just kind of comes on randomly. It's all interactive with how you use the decoder. And then on top of that, with the Tsunami 2 architecture, there's 16 independent sound channels, which which means the decoder does not have to play a lot of the if-then game. And what that means is that if this is playing, then that can't. Um, So what that does is that gives you all of the different individual sound effects that have been intelligently mapped out. Uh, using real railroad experience, engineers that have run the locomotives, and operating manuals for, you know, in some cases, with how the locomotives work. And all of that is intelligently programmed into the software so that when you're using your locomotive, you're actually hearing those sounds triggering as the locomotive is being used. It's not just making random sounds based on, you know, oh, well, okay, it's been tense. let's make the compressor cycle or whatever the case is it's right. actually using the, your, your operation and that's what really brings the locomotive to life because let's just go back to the compressor example if your locomotive's sitting there you may hear it cycle every so often um, simulating just topping the air off but if you're actually out there using it and using your brakes more frequently it's going to cycle the compressor on and off a lot more frequently, so it's you're it's a lot more interactive. Same thing, like say for example on our uh, diesel, if you're running it at higher speeds, you're going to hear the radiator fans kick on more frequently. Now, admittedly, that's a very subtle sound effect; it's more of a humming sound, kind of in the background, but it does kick on more frequently as you're using it at the higher, you know, more frequently in the higher notches. Um, and and same with all of our all of our decoders. Quite frankly, the steam decoder has the same thing. So when you hit uh, you use your brakes more frequently, you use the locomotive, all those sounds are interactive, and, and they especially with a steam locomotive, you've got so many different appliances on a steam locomotive that it really takes advantage of those 16 sound channels because now the air compressor doesn't have to cut off to play the bell sound or whatever the case may be. However, they've chosen the if-then statements with, you know, with limited sound uh, channels. And so with ours, we've got 16 that we've determined was probably – Adequate enough to give enough sounds all at the same time and just by comparison Our economy has 12 independent sound channels our nearest competitor boasts that they have eight Yeah um, And so by doing that like I said your sounds don't cut on and off based on what you're you know Oh okay I'm playing the bell now the air compressor has to go
2: off or whatever the case may be um, Hey George would you mind if I jump in here for a quick second Sure sure you're talking about a lot of configuration and a lot of, you know, a lot more opportunity for adjustment on the tsunami two than than people have previously ha- previously had, and th- this mm-hmm. is the case for me too. And what I've developed uh, is kind of taking a taking a nod from the the music side of things, uh, how. You know, music amplifiers and things—they have a lot of presets built in, so you can kind of hone into the general direction you want to go first, and then you can fine-tune it by adjusting a few of the knobs to get exactly what you want. I'm taking that approach to programming, mm-hmm. and what I'm doing is in JMRI just kind of give you a backup, back up a little bit, going back to the speed tables. Uh, I decided, okay, I'm not going to be afraid of the 28-point speed table. In fact, JMRI allows me to actually maneuver these visually and uh, be able to kind of keep myself from getting lost in the weeds okay. um, because you, you're dealing with you know, like 28 different values all at once and writing it down can only get you so far, but it's actually nice being able to see the slider kind of form generally a curve visually. And that, that can sure. kind of... I'm a visual person. That's what I need to kind of really understand these things. Gotcha. So so taking that approach, more of a visual approach and a preset approach, what I've been able to do is like take a speed table that I really like, save it as like a CSV file. Of course, anybody can do this without a computer. You could probably just do this on a piece of graph paper and just write each CV that you like and say, okay, this is the locomotive I use on, on 5310 or something like that. And just keep it in a binder or a notebook and then manually enter it in through the hammerhead or whatever throttle, Mm -hmm. but doing kind of that exact same thing digitally. I have some, I have presets for the equalizer. I have presets for, my function mapping, my presets for the speed table and mm-hmm. I can quickly deploy these things on a new model by going okay, I want to use this speed table with this function mapping and and this is kind of where I want to be with the equalizer and since it's the same speaker setup as this other locomotive, you know. Mm-hmm. And that really helps program quickly. And makes, uh, agreed. It, and makes it like a three-step process versus, you know, you could be modifying 100 CVs very easily with the Tsunami, too, just because it's so configurable. Right. Um, so it, I, I think that now that there's all this opportunity, just got to come up with a newer ways to kind of manage our infrastructure to... Actually deploy our programming, because I, I think people get a little bit lost in the weeds when they go, "Wow, it's running good right now." Do I really want to get into the actual speed curves of this thing? And you start thinking about modifying, you know, getting to a, a precise curve that you want in there. That's kind so, of how I approached it. And um, I can
1: fully understand that too. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, I think too, everybody listening out there, don't be afraid to kind of think of things as pages in a book. And it'll also help you when you start programming the tsunami too, is having that, that visual recognition that these are kind of like pages in a book, come up with your own presets, even if you're writing it down though, that'll just help you in the long run kind of divide and conquer when it comes to programming. So after you
0: creating CV tables that you can import in from like a Excel spreadsheet Yes. All these different presets. Okay.
2: Yes, and in fact, uh, to, to kind of give a little bit more background, George, I was interested in in un. I I don't want to really say unlock, but uh, but for lack of a better term, uh, unlock the the lower speed curve uh, of of our locomotives. Mm-hmm. I was noticing one time that. On, on this one SD, I was running it. And speed step one, it started to take off at a at, at a pretty good clip. But, you know, it was on par with a Tsunami, okay? Okay. It, it, speed step one on this was about the same speed as a, on, on a Tsunami. So that that was good. I mean, that's sufficient. It makes it easy to speed match between those mm-hmm. two. But, I've, you know, if you're talking about a switcher, that doesn't have to worry about being consistent with a Tsunami. Right. What I wanted to do was not have to hit a function button to cut all of those speed steps in half for the switching mode. I just wanted this thing to have one mode that would, you know, when I'm on speed step one just have this thing a creeper where, you know, you're you're kind of counting The wood grain compared to the front pilot as it moves across the tie you know (laughs) right Uh, (laughs) pretty slow pretty slow and and i knew it was capable of doing this because when i hit the the function button to go into switching mode it would pretty much you know open up that that lower end and the way i was able to really unlock the tsunami too was or i should say unlock this the low speed steps of the Tsunami 2 was through mm-hmm. the 28-point speed table. Mm-hmm. And what I also noticed, too, at least on Atherton locomotives, about mid-throttle, it was pretty much at top speed. It was okay. just how the nature of the of the motor is. You know, it after a certain point, it, it's, it's running so many RPMs and it doesn't give go that much that much higher even at 12 volts so what i did is i just took the midpoint and made it closer towards the the higher uh the higher uh speed table uh cvs for the la- uh, what i'm trying to i'm stammering on this but what i did is i moved the midpoint all the way almost to the end Perhaps okay. to to like the last six of the CVs. I, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And, and then dialed in the 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 first uh, I'd say three quarters of the speed table to be at the much lower end of it. Gotcha. So, and and the speed curve is just like night and day. <laughs> yeah, you you well, get so you get so much more low speed out of it, and it's really cool being able to have like a mid mid-speed and it go really slow it's like being back on dc yeah a a dc tech 2 type throttle where you had this really crazy resolution on on the low speed frequencies you know with like pulse you hit that pulse thing man
1: (laughs) 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 well how would you like to slow that down a little further i got another little tip for you since we're talking motor control and and speed tables um one of the other hidden features of the hyperdrive 2 is a configurable back EMF reference voltage. Okay. And what this does, this is in CV215, and the decoder, the original Tsunami was hard-coded at 16 volts. So it looked at the track voltage and said, okay, I'm expecting 16 volts on the rails, and so when I'm reading my back EMF at whatever speed, I should see XYZ voltage. And what was happening is if you had, say, 13 or 14 volts on the rails, What was happening was then the decoder was kind of overcompensating because it wasn't seeing as much back EMF. And Uh, so with the Tsunami 2, we've made that adjustable so you can adjust that to match your DCC track voltage. Then the decoder will take that into consideration when it's doing its back EMF calibrations. Um, To kind of take a step here for a second, if you'd like, I can explain a little bit on what back EMF is, how it works and what the decoder does with that if you'd like if you don't understand if you don't know that or if you think that would be uh, beneficial to go over
0: no if you've got the time george i think sure that's one of those uh, fog fields for a lot of modelers
1: uh, i they, would agree
0: yeah go ahead
1: so so just kind of like what chris alluded to when you're talking about dc voltage everybody quickly understands that you you change the voltage on the rails the motor turns faster. And so when when you look at, at, at motor control, especially going back to like the MRC, what they were doing was they were putting maybe a volt on the rail, but that pulse power was sending millisecond pulses of say 10 or 15 volts to kind of help get that motor past any sticky mechanism or anything like that and allowed it to creep a lot slower than anything that had been done in the past. But What that also did is it kind of leaded into now how motors are controlled by decoders, which is called pulse width modulation. And to kind of sum that up, don't worry, I'll explain the term here, is the decoder sends momentary pulses of full track voltage to the motor, but for short periods of time. As you increase the throttle, though, that duration of that pulse becomes longer. And this is what the decoder is doing. It's modulating the width of the pulse to increase the speed of the motor. So basically, if you look at power control to the motor, it's like a light switch. It's either on or it's off. If you're holding it in the on position in the longer period of time, then the, then like a light, the room would appear brighter. And so what's happening is the motor would turn faster. This is actually why everybody is recommended to measure things like stall current. Because when you go from zero to speed step one, your decoder actually sends a pulse of say 14 volts to the motor, but the motor stopped at that moment because it's, it's, it has not been turning. So you meet stall current every single time you go from zero to speed step one. As that motor starts to turn though, when it sees that pulse and it starts to turn, then the current draw of that motor drops significantly. But the reason I point this out is because the way what back EMF is, is it's called back electromotive force. And as the motor is turning, the, the power to that motor is still turned on and off. And when the motor is turning and the power is off, what happens when you take electrical windings and turn it around in a magnet? It creates an electrical pulse. And that's what the decoder is reading. It's reading that electromagnetic uh, force that's coming back from the motor in that motor circuit during the duration of the off time. And so if your decoder is expecting, say, 16 volts on the rails, uh, I don't know what the numbers are, so we'll just throw a number out here, but the decoder may be expecting 50 millivolts coming back from the motor. If it doesn't see 50 millivolts, it's gonna increase that duration of that pulse until it sees 50 millivolts coming back from the motor. That's what back EMF does. In most decoders, when they're using back EMF for, for speed control or cruise control, because when you encounter a grade, let's say, and you start going uphill, well, your decoder is going to physically slow because now the motor's working harder to get up that hill because it's pulling the length of cars, the locomotives itself, et cetera. Well, the back EMF control is watched and it sees that that power is dropping as it's getting up that hill. So the decoder is compensating. For that loss in voltage by increasing the pulse of that of that motor until it sees that 50 millivolts back up again, and then it maintains that speed uphill, downhill, around the curve, through the turnouts, whatever. Now, when the, the by allowing the user to adjust the back EMF reference voltage, let's say our track voltage is only 14. Well, that 14 volts may put let's you know, say 30 millivolts back on the in the back EMF. Well, if the decoder is expecting 50 millivolts, it's going to overcompensate. And vice versa, is that if your, volta- if your reference voltage is lower than your track voltage, the decoder is then going to reduce your pulse until it sees that expected millivolts uh, coming back from the motor. And so by doing that, if you take uh, your, your back EMF reference voltage in CV215 that's in the hyperdrive 2, which is in Tsunami 2 and Econami, you can actually even slow it down a little bit further uh, because now you're moving now the decoder is expecting a lower back EMf voltage and so that speed step one now just became a little slower
2: so like motor sonar
1: kind of it, it's a little bit like that and and like i said i mean it's hard it's hard to illustrate like Chris you're you're a visual person so it's kind of hard to, to illustrate that by talking
2: but yeah that's you why imagine... i use analogy because then i can actually visualize these things happening because say if a boat is like pinging the the bottom of the ocean floor and it's and it's higher you're going to hear have a quicker turn back means mm-hmm. means a higher frequency coming back versus like mm-hmm. if the ocean floor is at the bottom you know it's going to take it's going to be a lower frequency correct
1: and so you you're kind of using that and and so the back EMF reference voltage tells the decoder basically to expect the depth of the motor of that ocean floor and right so if it doesn't see that, that same frequency or that same power coming back from the motor, it's going to adjust the sonar depth to adjust <laughs> until it sees that.
2: That's really interesting. That is really interesting that you can do that with, a, with the decoder. And so just just kind of, uh, add on to that, when I'm setting up my
1: decoders to kind of talk a little bit to what you're doing, I have my standard function mapping list. And so I have that printed out. So when I go home and I install a decoder – I take that list and I put it in front of me. Now, I don't have Decoder Pro at home for a couple of reasons, but I won't get into. Um, But for convenience, I I can just program the CVs just as quickly as it takes me to turn on the laptop and turn on the the Decoder Pro. But I'd sit there and go through and program each of those CVs. So all my function mapping CVs are set right there. All my sound selection CVs are set right there. So, you know, I'm model Missouri Pacific, so they typically use a, a Leslie S3LR horn. So I go first through and so, and select that air horn off the list. Then I look at my model and I say, okay, what am I modeling? I'm modeling a GP38. So I pick the 645 non-turbo and then, and so on. And I pick all those. Then I go through my roster of my, of my standard CVs, like function mapping, uh, typical volumes that are set based on, um, like you can get an app now for your phone that measures decibel levels. So I have, I have a certain decibel level that I want the model to be heard from a certain distance. And so when I'm setting up that model, I'll put my phone there with my decibel meter going and I'll adjust my CVs. And I have a basic common, you know, kind of a common area of where I want my CV set so I can go through and set those really quickly and then use my, my decibel meter to determine how, close i am and if i'm close enough then great i'm done move on to the next one but if i'm way off like say for example i'm using a a 28 millimeter round speaker instead of a mini cube speaker uh then that decibel level may be louder and so i can make the adjustments accordingly
2: Um, now what we need is an app to measure scale speed (laughs) so you could just put your phone down and run the train across the across the from the face of the phone and have it measure to scale speed at each speed step. That would just be
0: Well, there's the electronic you know. ones out there that yeah. use trip lights with laser. Right, yeah. It would be about the bit. same
2: thing, but it, yeah. how you want nice it it would on be like phone. an app? <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: we may have finally found a thing that there isn't an app for that. <laughs> there's no app for that. <laughs>
0: George, when you were talking about your decibel meter, are you talking about one of the apps like an FFT type of uh, plotting that will measure all the frequencies and give you the decibel ranges and so forth?
1: Kind of. I forget what it was, which one I have on there. It's just a free one I downloaded you know, a few years ago. Um, if you search your app store or, or, or Google store, Play store, whatever, for free decibel meter or free sound measure tool or whatever... Uh, you can find all kinds of different ones, and it's using the microphone on your phone. Right. And so, when you're setting it, you kind of want to, in order to maintain apples to apples, you want to set, like, say, you're 24 inches from the model. You should read X number of decibels. So, you know, set your microphone to be 24 inches away from the model, and you'll have that.
0: Yeah. The uh, I use uh, an FFT app on there when I'm. Uh, tuning when I've mm-hmm. got the locomotives on the test track and say like yesterday I was notching up a uh, a unit with a tsunami two I had two different ones same model one had uh, Railmasters Hobbies twenty eight millimeter speaker the mm-hmm. other were uh, sugar cubes and mm-hmm. I was reading the uh, the graph the sound plot to tell me oh, I need to go back into uh, 225, 226, whatever it was, and boost that value, cut here, you know, especially because the mid-mid-range and upper-mid-range can be so strong on a, on a basic sound file. Right. So, no, I agree with you, a very helpful tool, very helpful
1: yeah. So, you know, just another thing that gives us the ability to customize the decoders to match our tastes, you know, or your tastes or Chris's taste or whatever, because all of a sound is very subjective and, and, and everybody's ears are a little bit different. You know, it could be what they're exposed to, you know, for example, working in a loud industry um, you could just be, you know, I have different genetics and things like that. And and age actually has a factor of a two and all of this comes into play. And so, what we've done is we've tried to create, you know, the ultimate sound studio in addition to the just the decoder itself that allows you to really go in and kind of make that sound good to you uh, without having to spend hours in front of a computer downloading, you know, software and firmware and all this, um, you know, because you've got, you know, just to kind of go back to, to sound selection or sound uh, tools. We've got the seven band equalizer. Uh, we have a reverb processor that allows you to go in and adjust that. We've talked about the volume levels, and we have a high-pass filter, which is something that's unique to the Tsunami 2 because what we do with our decoders is we send, we fill the decoder with the entire sound profile. So if you were to hook a Tsunami 2 up to your stereo system in your, in your living room or your you know full bass uh, sound system, you're going to be standing right next to that locomotive because you've got the full spectrum. We don't pre-filter. And what that does, though, is there's a, there's a uh, possibility for some of the um, audio frequencies because our speakers that we're using in most of our models, most being the keyword, uh, physically can't reproduce a lot of those low end frequencies. And so we've added a a high pass filter that will pre filter those at those low frequencies out, so you can match that filter to match your speaker. And right. what that does is it helps make the amplifier a lot more efficient. So it's not trying to reproduce that your speaker is going to run a lot better because it's not trying to reproduce a frequency range that it can't and therefore produce clipping or, or sound distortion, anything like that. And then you can play with the equalizer and the equalizer, you can take, you know, two, let's say, EMD 645 turbo sound files, put them in the same speaker and you can have two of them sound completely different. Uh, one's got mid range raised the other's got high end raised and and you know the two locomotives won't sound anything alike and you can adjust these by just a few decibel levels in each uh, frequency range and using your sound spectrum scope that you're talking about your FFT um, that allows you to go through and kind of see your your sound profile mm-hmm. and you can make the you can use that equalizer and that high pass filter to, go in and kind of adjust the spectrum of that sound so that it'll sound a little different than every other locomotive on your roster and uh, you know it, it'll take you know it's another one of those uh you know features that a lot of people may or may not use but it does give you a lot of customizing options um, and it's in every one of our tsunamis the economies and the tsunami twos the equalizer is and the high pass filter is a tsunami 2 feature only but Um, You can kind of cut where that frequency range is uh, based on the the CV setting and it'll just filter out everything below that frequency range. And uh, uh, like I said, it'll help you customize the decoder again to match the speaker that you've selected.
0: I think that's what uh, CV 224 on the high pass filter.
1: I think that's correct. I'll be honest with you. I forgot to look it up, but I believe that is correct.
0: Because yesterday after I sent you the email, and watching the fft plot Mm -hmm. and i looked up at the high pass filter and i went what the heck is that value and it may have been a default value i don't know but it was like 67 hertz and i said none of these speakers on their best you know wildest Mm -hmm. day are gonna be approaching that so i took it up because one of the guys on a forum one time ran a plot on uh, this was a Tsunami 1. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm actually reading frequencies as low as 250 and once in a while a little bit lower than 250. Mm-hmm. So I started playing with the high-pass filter and make a change, load it, notch it up. And all of a sudden I hit a point where... A lot of the, I'm going to say fuzz, was gone from the low end because mm-hmm. I had reached that point where I was f- filtering out what the speaker couldn't reproduce, and now it wasn't trying, so we eliminated a bunch of spurious noise.
1: No, you got it. An excellent
0: tool. Excellent tool.
1: Yeah, and that's the distortion that you're hearing because, I mean, think of, you know, if your speaker can only reproduce a certain frequency range, just to kind of back up a little bit, frequency is what we hear as the individual sounds. And so the the air pressure that's moving through the air with certain frequencies, that's where our ears are interpreting as sound. The, pre- the pressure of those airwaves are what we interpret as volume. And the speaker can only reproduce those sounds by moving that speaker cone back and forth at the given frequencies. And that's how it reproduces the sound that travels to our ears. Well, if the speaker can only go so far, you know, base, especially the low frequencies, you're talking 50 hertz or something like that, it requires a long travel for that speaker. Oh, column. yes. Yes. And if you equate that to kind of, you know, taking yourself and pushing against a wall and you're wasting all that extra energy trying to push that wall, you've moved that high pass frequency to where now you're just you know, you're not pushing against the wall, you're more leaning against it. You're going to be a lot more efficient and it's not going to, you know, and like you said, it's not going to distort that sound and cause a lot of that fuzz that's going on in the background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and
0: maybe in a club environment like that or even in the store environment when I lived in Phoenix, a lot of that is masked just by the ambient noise. Correct. know air conditioning system, people walking, talking. But when you're you know, in your own train room, it's you and the dog, and she's asleep. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can pick up on that and go, gosh, I need to get rid of that. Uh, we have a guest, George, that's going to be coming on the show in a couple weeks, uh, who is a sound engineer. Oh, okay. And Chris turned me on to this guy because uh, Chris, Chris had bought some of his speakers. And oh, okay. So I started listening to his uh, YouTube I think videos. I know who you're
1: talking about. Uh, I JT? Know who yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, so he's going to be on. He's, he's wrapping up an album production for a group right now. He's got a deadline coming up. And uh, he and I have had some wild, it's uh, been a learning experience for me. The relationships of the frequencies and... When he talks, starts talking about roll-off rates and all this kind of stuff, my eyes kind of glaze over. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, but yeah, he's just a regular guy. He's just a fanatical uh, sound engineer, and he cut does a lot of engineering on uh, albums, well Mm -hmm. CDs, whatever we're going to call them now. Sure. But uh, interesting. So we're going to have him on in another week or so when uh, he tells me he's free and clear of the uh, burden of getting this album out for somebody, but that'd be a good
2: follow-up to what's going on here for sure. Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And uh, does that interest you, George? You want to be a part of that?
1: Uh, maybe. Um, I, I Let me know when it is because okay. the, next, uh, the next couple of weeks, I'm actually going to be traveling quite a bit for both okay. personal and work. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how much time I'll have if it's a couple of weeks, but if it's after the 30th or 31st of July, then I might could be able to, uh, to join in because I've actually been talking with him because he does a lot of decoder installations and it looks like he's going to start. Uh, he's trying to start carrying some soundtrack stuff for us also. So that in conjunction with his speakers is going to be a very good combination. I've uh, I bought several of
0: his, and he said, well, you test them and let me know what you think. Because mm-hmm. he had looked at some of my videos where I'd done some stuff, and he said, okay, so let me know how these compare to that. And uh, so we even got talking into isobaric speaker mm-hmm. arrangements. We're actually working, I sent him the dimensions on some, for some retros. Chris and I have, Chris got me hooked on re Remotoring locomotives. Thank you, Chris. Another way to spend money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> the hobby industry thanks you. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: so I told him about that. And he says, well, give me the dimensions. He said, let me try and come up a speaker f- for that application. So we're going to be talking about this whenever he's available. But it's just, you know, my generation grew up with <laughs> the big 150-pound piece of wood that had the record player and a couple really cruddy speakers on it playing badly scratched uh, 33s. And so I heard some, at the time, was high audiophile equipment. And we're talking Mm -hmm. 1971. And I was Mm -hmm. just blown away because it was a symphony. And so I got talking to the guy, and I said, I hear the sound, but I don't know why it sounds so better than this you know zenith sitting in the living room he says well let me start explaining to you and i was i had the sound bug and i've had it ever since you know i've put in home theater for people and so forth but this what this guy's doing well like what you're doing george is just so far above me i'm in awe
1: uh, it's all beneficial for everybody in the hobby because every time we push ourselves a little bit further and and try to better that reproduction, I mean, you guys benefit. And, and you know, as a modeler myself, I'm always looking for better ways to do things or new new tips and hints I can pass on to, to other users or the models because, I mean, I, like I said, I'm a modeler myself. I, I nerd out a lot about the sound and, and how the locomotives work, and I just get so much fun. I just enjoy that part of it so much. I got to the point where I'm installing decoders more so than I've actually worked on my layout. Uh, I'm I'm uh, in the so same day.
2: boat there, George. <laughs>
1: yeah. So yeah, it's it's fun and and there's room for more. So, <laughs> you know, there's it's there's so much fascinating on how all this stuff works together that for me, part of the fun part of my job is I get to go show people. Like I know myself, I've never run a real locomotive, and I, I hope to someday but I don't necessarily see it happening. But the, the feedback that I've gotten from, you know, railroad engineers, people on the road that who, t- you know, where I've met at shows, they, you know, share some experience. Um, we tie all that stuff together to make sure that we bring a decoder to the market that really does give you that effect, but not overcomplicated. So somebody, you know, dummy like myself can figure out how to use it on the, on their DCC system, as opposed to, uh, you know, having to push all these extra buttons and, spin in a circle, pat your head three times and do this. We try to make it somewhat easier uh, to interpret that so that anybody can get that realistic experience. Because I think after all, most of us are are going after that more realism, that 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 scene that really makes this railroad come to life and make it look like the real thing. And why not add that extra element with the sound and the operation of the decoder? And that's the way I kind of look at things with from my perspective. I have fun doing it.
0: Oh yes, if yeah, I'm anal retentive that way too. If I can't <laughs> do it realistically, then it's a toy train. I want yeah. it too. Yeah, it's why you're the tsunami twos DDE mm-hmm. when it's properly set up, uh, even on the nice, small road, and mm-hmm. it would lug and that. Yeah, it took a took a while to tune the values. Uh, especially the low volume and the high volume
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but it was I went wow this is just like setting uh tracks watching a train go by
2: mm-hmm. so
0: so cool when we were Chris I told you about setting in my friend's backyard you know there up there in uh, bellingham Washington and he said, mm-hmm. "Yeah, look out over the harbor. Look out over the boats." I said, "No, look out over the Burlington Northern yeah. <laughs> main line." And whether it was a, a, a seventy ace, whether it was one of the uh, Jivas going by, and then even the F fifty nine on the Cascades, and they would, you'd hear them. Lugging up because everything had a mid train or I'm sorry, a rear end helper. and then coming down, you'd hear him hit the crest and then just start drifting. And when you can replicate that in an h o scale locomotive, that is just so incredible.
2: Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's a lot of fun also uh, once you get that sound decoder installed, it kind of brings brings a static model to life, you Yes. Know? Mm -hmm. yeah it's really fulfilling i agree
1: i was talking with uh i had dinner with a friend of mine um last night who's a big rail fan in this area especially and we were talking about the old uh, rio grande up over tennessee pass where they would run uh local you know trains with 18 locomotives on it and it was (laughs) it it was it was fascinating talking to him because he would say that you know they had um i think it was five on the front there were 10 mid-trains And there were three in the back, and the reason there were only 10 was he was talking about the fact that the MU cable could only carry that signal 10 locomotives away, because then it faded enough that you didn't have control of those last 11 or 12 locomotives. Um, And that can be problematic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So. (laughs) <laughs> it was just fascinating because he was talking about it. He was chasing this one, and he was sitting on—I forget which overpass he was—but he watched it, and he, you know, shooting, you know, uh, uh, still photos and and everything. He said you could just feel it; the whole bridge is shaking. And uh, he said, you know, it's an experience like nothing else. And and that's where, you know, like you talked about setting the DDE and and trying to to bring the locomotive or the the railroad to life. You know, the DDE, if you set it properly, you can create that where those locomotives are really working hard and trying to push that locomotive, no, that train up over the hill. And conversely, when you're going downgrade that you're not hearing them working as hard, you're hearing dynamic braking and the, the train is just running really, really slow. And that's what's really fun about bringing these, uh, you know, you installing the decoders is because you
2: get all that working together and man, it's a really fun experience. Uh, you know, Ken Patterson put it the best. He said it's sort of like with the tsunami 2, It makes it sort of like a video game. Oh, yeah, really, very. very. Yeah, and, and 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 it's true because in you know during these different conditions, yeah. you got to do these different things, much like a video game, in order to get it to you know be realistic and and you know bring itself to life. You know, so. Yeah. I, thought, I thought that was a, a, a good analogy.
1: Well, I've thought of that because you've got those role playing video games and, you know, where people are first person uh, view or whatever they call them, uh, where you're running through and you've got to get this and you've got to, you know, grab this uh, treasure and you got to take it over here and do this. And I mean, that's kind of what we're doing. But in a 3D environment. So we're not just stuck staring at a screen. We can actually create the scene and then operate our trains realistically in that scene. To me, that that that's a lot of the fun.
0: All right. And George, so your next challenge when you bring out the tsunami three, we're gonna want we're gonna want diesel exhaust haze.
1: Diesel exhaust haze.
0: Yeah, not not just hokey puffy white stuff coming out of a diesel but kind of just that light bluish gray haze so what maybe we need to get a chemical engineer in here and come up with something that won't kill us when it happens <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> yeah oh uh, yeah they all the model railroaders got sick due to the because they had real carbon monoxide but that uh
2: you, we can always call it the Tsunami Ocho for like run eight or something. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Ocho, yes. Hey, careful now. We're going to start rumors here. that in, in the,
1: you, know how, you know how the internet works. Somebody's going to hear this little clip and they're going to go, oh, Tsunami 3 or Tsunami Ocho is coming out. <laughs> the Ocho. I'm going to wait for the Ocho. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to buy today. I'm going to wait for the Ocho. And it's like, oh, come on. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, that never works. Uh, what else is on your mind, guys? This has been a great, a great hour. What else is there? Anything else we need to beat to death?
2: Well, you I, know? I actually gotta hang up here, but you guys can keep going. I, I gotta. I was actually going to chime the same. Maybe
1: we save the next topic for the next uh, installment. Okay.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I appreciate you guys. Times for tonight.
2: All right. Hey. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Right. We'll you guys see you. Have a great <laughs> night. <laughs>
0: All right, bye-bye.